Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. In this episode, we're thrilled to have one of the most interesting leaders in the financial services industry that I've had the privilege of working with, my good friend, Larry Thompson. Larry retired from being general counsel of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation recently, where he spent nearly 40 years, but he's not sitting idle by any means. Larry remains actively involved in several corporate and fintech boards, as well as charitable efforts. I'm incredibly honored and pleased to welcome Larry Thompson to FIA Speaks. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Walt. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, Larry, uh, let's begin. You were general counsel and a member of the executive management team of DTCC for many years. You know, I describe DTCC as one of the most important financial companies that most people have never heard of. You know, that is until this, you know, events around the GameStop and Robinhood effect uh, shed some light on the plumbing of our financial system. You know, before we dive into these events, Tell us a little bit about your personal journey that led you to DTCC and up its ranks. Well, it's interesting, Walt. Um, I started my career at a law firm uh, called Davis Polk and Wardwell, uh, where I did mergers and acquisition work. And I did that for about five years uh, and then decided to move on to a predominantly minority uh, firm in Midtown Manhattan, Lake Bogan, Lenore Jones and Thompson. What I found out, though, when I moved to that general practice firm, is I really enjoyed working in the financial services industry uh, and doing financial legal work. Uh, so I decided to look around and see what I could do. I thought first about going back to Davis Polk, uh, but then a friend of mine told me about a small company called the Depository Trust Company, uh, and that it did something that was very unique in the financial industry. It was basically holding securities. And I thought it was intriguing and decided to uh, just look into it. And I got an interview with the then chairman and founder of the company, a fellow by the name of Bill Denser, William Denser. Um, Bill and I were supposed to have an interview of about half an hour. And at five o'clock, five hours later after the interview started, we were still talking about what we had in common. Um, So I knew at that point that I was probably going to be invited to to join a company called the Depository Trust Company. I did, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, I was with the company uh, for almost 40 years. Well, during that 40 years, I mean, you were involved in so many things. Uh, It's hard to even list them. But before we get into your personal achievements during that career, Tell us a little bit about what DTCC does for those viewers that may not understand you know, the clearinghouse and how it works and the importance of it to the financial services industry. Well, I mean, the, the primary purpose for DTCC is to protect 
the investing public uh, from a default of a member of DTC, which in this particular case, obviously, as you know, means pretty much all of the financial industry. So all of the broker dealers, uh, all of the banks, uh, and more and more uh, other types of financial institutions are actually members of one uh, subsidiary or the other of DTCC. So DTC has three main subsidiaries, all of which are systemically important financial market utilities. Uh, they are DTC, which is what we call a depository, the depository trust company. Then we have the National Securities Clearing Corporation, which handles all the day-to-day broker-to-broker transactions, which you're probably gonna ask me questions about later on. And then finally, there's the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation, which handles all of the fixed income clearing transactions, predominantly US treasuries and some mortgage-backed securities. Uh, We also have a reporting service for derivatives transactions, so swap transactions, uh, and that's called DerivServe. So those are the major four subsidiaries of DTCC. And as I said, the main aim is to make certain that the plumbing goes smoothly, that you don't really have any interruptions, that if there's any failure of any of those members, that we can contain that failure and protect the investing public uh, and the U.S. taxpayers from getting any kind of harm going happening to them. Well, let's turn a little bit to you know your role at DTCC over that 40-year time frame. Um, there must be certain um, you know things that stand out, achievements over that career that you're most proud of. Um, I, I'm curious about that, but also what were the challenges you faced and, and any challenges that stood out to you? Well, there were a number of interesting uh, events that occurred. I mean, first of all was was the whole learning curve of learning what was going on at this company called the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. Uh, and you know we had to put together all of those pieces. Uh, as you know, I when I was at DTCC, I spent a lot of time going to Europe and Asia. And they would always talk about the US model you know, called the DTCC as if we thought it up in one unit. That actually didn't happen. Uh, You know, at the time that I joined the depository trust company, there were other depositories around the country. There was one in Philadelphia, there was one in Chicago, there was one in Boston, there was one in San Francisco. Uh, There was also clearing corporations that were in other parts of the country. So one of the first things that we had to do was to see if we could put all of those pieces together. Uh, And we were able to do that. And one of the challenges that I had early on was actually being the lawyer in charge of merging all of those organizations or integrating all of those organizations into the, you know, what we now call the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. So that was a, the first major challenge that we had uh, that, you know, how do you put it all together and how does it make it function in a way that really continues to protect the public? The other thing that we wanted to do was we didn't wanna bring a great deal of attention to this institution. Uh, we thought, and, and when I say we, I'm talking about the management team led by Bill Denser at the time, really believed that it was important for the institutions that made up DTCC to be the ones that the focus is on. So the focus should be on the banks, the brokers, but it shouldn't be on the plumbing of the institution, that we should have a low profile. And so we never 
actually try to tell anybody what we were. And that, that I think worked very well in terms of helping us, you know, keep a low profile and we're able to develop all of the structures that we now call the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. Well, one of that I, I stands out in my mind too is Superstorm Sandy. Um, and, you know, with the flooding in lower Manhattan and for those that don't know, DTCC's offices were in, in the financial district at 55 Water Street. You know, tell us about that period of time because that is so interesting. You know, not only does DTCC um, you know, clear trades, but they also were a repository for physical um, assets. And so give us a little bit of background there. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was going to mention, you know, in terms of the events that really stand out, Superstorm Standing is one of them. Uh, obviously, we also were involved in 9-11. Uh, and we were also involved, as you know, in the financial crisis of 2008 to 2010. Superstorm Sandy, the challenge was that we couldn't get to the offices in lower Manhattan. You know, the flooding that took place there prevented us from doing that. And yet at the same time, we had to continue to run the organization remotely. Luckily for us, uh, we can run, or, or we were able to run all of our um, clearing operations remotely. And so we had actually done a, uh, an experiment the week before, an exercise where all of our employees had worked remotely at some part of the day. So the fact that we already had that experience was tremendously helpful in allowing us to work remotely. I was working remotely in my home in New Jersey. Uh, the CEO at the time uh, was working remotely from his home in, in Westchester or in Connecticut. Uh, and so we had everybody doing that. And we had very few people who were actually you know, at the physical location. We did have guards there. Uh, and as the flooding took place, we obviously ran into an issue with, what do you do with all of the physical certificates? As you know, uh, right now, most certificates in the US are dematerialized, meaning that they are really an electronic nature at best. And that's probably about 96 to 97% of all of the securities that are traded in the US. However, there is that other 3% uh, which is held in physical form, including uh, some bearer bonds that were at the time. Those were in our vault at 55 Water Street. Uh, and we had to wonder what was going on with those. And as you know, uh, the flooding that took place at 55 Water, which was our location, actually was above what the vault level was. So by the time we actually physically got in there, all of those certificates were actually wet. Uh, they had been in uh, the waters that had come from the, you know, um, the river into lower Manhattan. Uh, and we had to, had to clean all of those. Uh, and that was quite a process. Uh, we had to first put in a mechanism where we looked at the securities, uh, we freeze dried the securities, we taped everything that we did and then we shipped the securities to a secure location where, where we brought the moisture back out of the securities. We cleaned the securities and we, at that point, were able to bring them back. We were actually able to recover 99.9% .9 of all of these securities that were in the vault. 
an amazing thing that happened, including all of the bearer bonds uh, that were in the vault. So from an insurance standpoint, it was a huge success for the company uh, and it was a major event. But of all of the events that I mentioned earlier, uh, the one that stood out to me as one of the most significant ones was really 9-11. And the reason why 9-11 stands out to me is because it was so sudden. Even with Hurricane Sandy, we knew that the hurricane was on its way. We could put in some precautions, some protections. 9-11 occurred out of nowhere. Nobody expected it. There was a tremendous loss of life. And of course, it was very disruptive to the financial industry because it happened when trading had already started in the fixed income markets, had not started, as you know, in the equity markets, but it did affect broker dealers who were so, you know, in, in the World Trade Center at the time. Uh, and we had to figure out ways to keep all of those broker dealers in business and not allow them to go out of business. And so what we had to do was to get materials to them, uh, to their various offices, to give them records uh, because their records had been destroyed, uh, you know, in the attack that occurred there uh, to make certain that they understood what their positions were. Uh, and obviously you can't replace the knowledge base that they had, but we did have records that could show them what their records look like and things of that sort. So that to me was the most significant uh, of all of the memories. 9-11 uh, was just an amazing thing that occurred. Uh, you know, we had to talk to the city, the state, the Fed uh, about how do we get our workers back down uh, into a devastated site. We were able to do that, by the way. We were able to get 500 of our employees back down uh, into 55 Water Street, which was a quarter of a mile away from the World Trade Center. And because of the hard work that they did, uh, it allowed the exchanges to reopen, you know, a, a little over a week after the uh, the attack occurred. You know, it was such a such a uniting moment for the country, um, for the New York Stock Exchange to open, and for the DTCC to be able to clear the products that they were trading. Um, I just vividly remember, and I was in Washington at the time. You know, again, one of the sites being attacked uh, during 9/11. I was working in the Congress, but you know, I just I just remember the the collective effort of the mayor and the financial services industry to to not you know to not be beaten down by this and to get up and running, you know. And I think the following Monday after this, you guys were up and running. It was amazing. Well, we actually ran during the entire time. We never mm -hmm. actually shut down, as you know. Back in those days, um, you know, the trading cycle was T plus three. Uh, it's now T plus two, which meant basically that you had to settle all of the trades that had occurred three days prior. So we actually had to stay open during the 9-11 attack and settle all of the trades that we did. We actually settled on that day well over two and a half trillion in securities transactions on that particular day. And we had to stay open the, the next day uh, to finish off the trades that uh, were also in the queue and the day following. And so we had to have, you know, a certain number of employees who came in. I was in charge. In fact, I stayed at 55 Water for most of that time working with the city and the state. And by the way, the state was absolutely amazing because they gave us special 
uh, badges to allow our employees to come into lower Manhattan to work with the federal government uh, to bring those employees there and to get everything done so that we could reopen um, you know, in a timely fashion that following Monday. So it was, it was a collective job. Everybody was amazing in what they did. Uh, and I appreciated all of the help. I, re I in particular remember uh, the guard service at DTCC who brought me clothes and food uh, to 55 Water Street so I didn't have to leave uh, and we could get everything done. Just an amazing effort that was done. And uh, by the way, it was those guards again who st stood the test of time and worked in Hurricane Sandy, did an incredible job putting their lives on the line to make certain that the plumbing for the financial industry stayed in place and was able uh, to be effective and, and for our financial industries to continue to operate. It's such powerful memories. Um, like I can understand why that stands out over your career. You know, Larry, I, I think we first met when I was uh, acting chairman of the CFTC and you came in with Don Donahue, who was CEO of DTCC at the time, and uh, to update me on, on what was happening at, at DTCC. Uh, but I really got to know you when I was, um, you know, working at NYPC, which is a clearinghouse that DTCC jointly owned with the New York Stock Exchange. And you served on our board to help guide us, um, you know, to try to you know, get DTCC into derivatives clearing. And I think what I learned at the time was how regulated DTCC is as an institution. And I don't think I fully appreciated the amount of, of regulation and oversight that DTCC has to face, whether it's the SEC, the Fed, you know, global regulators, um, and you as general counsel were at the heart of this. Um, so this is something you oversaw the, the entirety of the global regulatory structure of DTCC. So give me a sense, I mean, you know, pulling up, you know, 30,000 feet, you know, what is good regulation in your vantage point, you know, and what are good regulators in your vantage point too? You've had so much experience in this area. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, at one time at DTCC, I think we estimated that we had around the globe somewhere close to 180 uh, different regulators that we had to report to. Obviously, the most important ones were the ones here in the US, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, which was our primary uh, regulator for our equity businesses. The CFTC, which you were acting chairman of at the time that we met, uh, was the primary regulator for our derivatives reporting business, swap reporting business. Uh, but then we had the uh, Fed New York, which was part of the Fed board, which oversaw not only just our banking operations, uh, but because of the Dodd-Frank Act, actually oversaw the entirety of what we were doing because they were the provincial regulator for everything that was occurring. And if you were designated as we were, the three major uh, parts of our business as systemically important financial market utilities, that's a mouthful, by the way, uh, <laughs> um, you, the Fed was literally part of your business. And in fact, they had regulators physically on our premises all the time. Um, and as far as I know, they still do. What makes a good regulator in my judgment is somebody who understands the complexity of not only the industry, but the role that you're trying to play in it. 
they're not necessarily your partner because regulators don't want to be your partner. They want to they want to make certain that they stand far enough away so they can be objective in terms of what you do. But they got to understand, in my judgment, not only just how you operate, but also the risks and the emerging risks that you have. And your job as a regulatee is to really make certain that you explain those clearly and concisely to the regulators on a constant basis. So, you know, what I wanted to do as general counsel and the person that was in charge of regulatory affairs is I wanted to make certain that we had a role in a group at DTCC. In fact, we set it up, a reg relations group that whose only job it was, was to make it easier for the regulators to understand the complexity that we saw to understand the risks that we did and to make certain that if they had a request, that that request was honored in a very timely fashion and that they got everything that they wanted to basically be the advocate for the regulator at the company and make certain that those things occurred. Um, and I think with that, you will have good, a good regulator and hopefully you'll have good regulation. Good regulation in my judgment is regulation that really is focused on what are the risks to the industry and how can we best deal with those risks? Uh, and you know, if you look at some of the bills that have come through Congress, Congress, when I was going down to Congress and explaining what DTCC was, eyes would glaze over. First of all, the numbers that we would roll off our tongue in terms of what it was that we did on a daily basis or yearly basis were just mind numbing. You know, on a daily basis, you know, the company was settling trillions of millions of dollars values of securities, US dollar value. Over the course of a year, uh, I think we did 1.5 quadrillion. And people would ask me, what is a quadrillion? And I'd have to explain, it's a one with 15 zeros after it. Um, but that's the dollar value and that's the complexity that we dealt with. And what you got to think about is when you want to come up with legislation on a on a industry that is that big uh, and that important to the economy of this nation, you got to think about what are the risks that you are bringing to it? What are the risks that you are putting them into their sites? And how do you best make certain that that regulation does as little harm as possible? And I think it's up to us to explain that to them in a fashion that is neutral because we want them to understand what's happening. But it's also going to have to be fulsome so that they understand fully what the risks are. And that was really what we tried to do uh, and, and to work with the regulators and the Congress to come up with everything. Because essentially what happened, as you well know, is when we had the financial crisis 2008 to 2010, you know, the power that Wall Street thought it had moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, and internationally, it moved from London to Brussels. Um, and one of the things that we did, and I think it was very effective on our part, is we actually set up an office in Washington, D.C., uh, not only for our executives to use, but for our members to be able to use as well, but also as a way so that we could explain things to not only the regulators who were down in Washington, but also to the Congress, the Senate, in the house uh, and other folks that in that fashion. And we could do the same thing in Europe. And we would also, as you know, make trips to the Far East, uh, to uh, Singapore, 
and to Hong Kong because they were important parts of our business as well. So it was really a global entity that we had to think about and we had to make certain that each and every one of those regulators understood the role that we played, how we dealt with risk, how we were facing risk and what risk could their actions bring to us. And by the way, what our actions could do that could be harmful to the industry or helpful to the industry. You know, I, I just think, it, you know, there the sun never sets on a DTCC regulated entity. I mean, I've, I've I, we've shared cocktails in Singapore and, and, and we've seen each other in Brussels. And um, so it, it is amazing how global that business ended up being. Um, and I, I would just say, you know, you talked about the, the regulators that you, um, you know, worked with at DTCC. You know, for the most part, I'll give a shout out to them. Um, you know, my experience with them is they were very thoughtful and very, um, you know, trying to do the best they could. And there's always exceptions to that as there is in life. But um, I always found the regulatory people that I dealt with at NYPC that also dealt with DTCC were very professional, very intelligent, um, trying to do the right things. I, I know that's your view as well. It is. It is my view. I mean, I... You know, first of all, as I said, it's always incumbent on the regulatee to make certain that they explain their business in a fashion that everybody can understand, uh, but also to make certain that they explain what the risks are. Not only just the risks that we see coming in from an external standpoint, but the risks that we may actually uh, be having as well. So we actually set up an office, as you know, an office of systemic risk, uh, so that we could actually talk to the regulators about the risk that we not only saw from coming in from other sources, but the risk that we could be creating. So to make certain that they understood all of that as well. The regulators, I thought by and large were extraordinarily thoughtful. They really cared a lot about what they were doing. They wanted to be careful in terms of how they crafted their regulations, their rules to make certain that they did no harm. Uh, and actually to try to be extraordinarily helpful and making certain that the business was able to grow and to be protected because the best line of defense uh, to any kind of risk is the first line of defense and that's the operations themselves. You know, we also have the second line of defense uh, which is always our auditors uh, and the other risk people that we have in place. And then the third line of defense is the external auditors and the regulators themselves who come in and do uh, examinations of us on a timely fashion. And in our case, uh, almost every day we had a regulator in some part of the world that was doing an exam of DTCC or some of its operations. So it, it meant that we had to have an exam group to make certain that everything uh, worked smoothly. And that yet at the same time, we could operate the company uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, let's turn to something that we talked about and I mentioned in my my intro, and that's the recent attention to DTCC and clearing as a result of the, the Robin Hood GameStop event, um, where, you know, I think Robin Hood allegedly um, had to restrict trading and raise capital in order to meet a, a significant margin call at DTCC. And I don't know the specific, specifics of this, um, but, you know, there's getting a lot of attention in Congress around this, whether there needs to be changes to the financial plumbing as a result of some of this activity around retail trading and, and, and these restrictions. 
So I'm just curious from your 100,000 foot vantage point at this, this stage, you know, did the system work as it was intended or are there, are there different changes that we may need to make as a result of this phenomenon? Well, um, from my perspective, and I don't know the details like you of what has occurred with GameStop uh, or any of the other um, parties that may be involved there in the whole retail uh, trading issue. Uh, but it sounds like based upon what I have been able to read that the system worked as intended. Um, I think everybody should just take a deep breath and understand the primary role of clearinghouses is to make certain that if a member defaults, that the damage is contained by the clearinghouse. And so what the clearinghouse does is it collects margin uh, from all of its members based upon their risk profile. So if you're, risk, if you're trading in very risky stocks, um, you are going to pay more in margin to the clearinghouse than if you are, you know, have a very, very low risk portfolio. Uh, and the reason for that is that you are bringing more risk to the clearinghouse. Uh, it is a mutualized institution, uh, meaning that you know, everything has to be contained inside it. And the reason why we wanna contain it inside is we wanna make certain that if there's a default, that that default doesn't do any harm other than inside of the clearinghouse itself, that it doesn't harm the investing public. And most important, that we don't have to go out to taxpayers, US taxpayers, and be able to have them absorb the losses that they should not have incurred. And I, you know, that's a lesson that we all learned uh, from the 2008, 2010 financial crisis. So it looked like to me, the system worked. So if Robinhood was bringing greater risk to NSCC, and that, by the way, that would have been NSCC. And to give you some example of what NSCC does on a daily basis, um, you know, all of the brokerage houses are members of DTCC. They don't have individual members. You and I can't join. Um, so it's going to be your brokerage house, in this case, uh, Robinhood, who would be your member um, if, if you're dealing directly with uh, NSCC. And they deal with over 100 million transactions on a daily basis. And they settle, on average, about $1.2 trillion dollars on a daily basis as well. And what they try to do is make certain that they have sufficient margin to look at the riskiest profile, both during the day and at various times, so that you'll get a margin call at the beginning of the day. Uh, and then as you trade through the day, there will be intervals where you'll get, get an intraday call uh, because of the activity that you have. And you'll have an, a closed day call as well so that everybody knows what's going on. That allows the system to make certain that they have enough capital that if you go out of business midday, they can close out all of your transactions without having to go out and borrow money from anybody else, that they can do that. And DTCC has been extremely successful in doing that. Uh, to give you one example, during the crisis 2008-2010, when Lehman Brothers went out of business, there was over 500 billion in open positions that DTC had to close out, DTCC had to close out. They did that 500 billion, closed out all of those positions, and in fact, gave the Lehman estate a profit 
at the end of the day um, so that there was no harm done uh, to the investing public. It worked as smoothly then as I'm sure it worked today uh, in terms of how things occurred. Uh, and, um, you know, at in the end of the day, essentially everybody got protected. And most importantly, the U.S. taxpayers did not have to pay a dime to the clearinghouses to clean up any of the failures that occurred. And that is really a key thing there that, that, that I wanted to, to press on to. Well, one, one of the areas I think that has focused some attention on, on clearing is the T plus two aspect and whether that can be brought to T plus one or T even T zero real time clearing. I think I've talked to Mike Bodson about this in years past where it's not a technology issue, it's a behavioral issue of bringing the street along to get to that. But is, is, can you give us some thought on, on, it sounds like this may be an impetus to get us there, I, I don't know, uh, but is there any, any uh, barriers from a technology standpoint uh, to get us to quicken the, the clearing, clearance and settlement cycles? Well, uh, Mike is the CEO of DTCC uh, and an old friend of mine uh, does a great job. Um, I would say, you know, as Mike told you, there is no technological barrier for DTCC to go to T0. Uh, it is, however, a socialization process. Uh, I mentioned earlier that when we were dealing with Hurricane Sandy, it was T plus three at the time uh, and, and earlier uh, when we had the issues with the financial industry, it was T plus three. We went to T2 because of the efforts of DTC and the industry working together in a cooperative fashion to find solutions to do that. But it took almost five years of effort to go from T3 to T2. You could go to T0. And in fact, there's a good deal of activity that occurs at DTCC on a daily basis that occurs on a T0 basis. There are trades that come in on the same day that need to be settled on the same day and they are settled on the same day. However, the issues that you're looking at is there's still a lot of physical certificates. You know, I mentioned earlier that most of the physical, most of the securities are in digital format. They're dematerialized, but there's about two to 3% which are still held physically by individuals. Let's call them mom and pop. And what does mom and pop do with those certificates? Well, they put them in their you know, underneath their bed for safekeeping. They you put them in their safety deposit boxes for safekeeping. And if they wanna sell those securities, they're gonna to have to get those securities to their broker. Uh, and that is gonna take time. And you don't wanna disenfranchise that part of the investing public. Plus, as we also mentioned, a good deal of the activity that occurs, occurs on a global basis these days. You know, U.S. securities are not only just traded here in the U.S. by U.S. and bought by U.S. personnel. They're bought by international uh, buyers as well, including some who are actually ahead of us uh, in a time cycle. So there, there are individuals who may live in Japan, may live in China, may live in Singapore, but like the liquidity of the U.S. market. And quite frankly, you want to have their business here in the U.S. because the more activity you have, the cheaper the process becomes for the U.S. investing public. But you, you know, if you're getting a trade coming in from a time zone that's ahead of us, it's very difficult to be able to do that on a T0 cycle. So all of those things will make it difficult, in my judgment, 
to get anything better than a T1. As you know, uh, in the fixed income market, we're pretty much at T1 right now. Um, and that has been very effective. And I think, you know, DTCC is working to try to get to at least a T1 environment, but that's gonna require cooperation beyond just what DTCC can do. You're gonna have to also get other jurisdictions to wanna work in that direction. You're gonna have to be able to socialize this uh, with those buyers who at the moment enjoy uh, that extra couple of days that they can take with their securities before they sell them. So it's gonna take a little bit, I think, before you get uh, to the technological, as, as I said earlier, you can do it technologically. It's not, that's not a problem. The issue is, can you do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the way the system is and doesn't take away from the investing public options that they have? You know, um, Wall Street firms are getting a pretty uh, tough rap, and this dates back to the financial crisis, um, you know, where... Uh, after you know the OTC derivatives fiasco caused a lot of the problems that we were faced uh, as an industry, um, and so it certainly has a, a tough, difficult uh, reputation here in Washington D.C. Um, but even as as people who work at a lot of these investment banks and other financial firms, it sounds like a tough place to work. At you know at DTCC, in my experience there, and you served on the ethics committee, you helped start the diversity committee there you really built a, a, a wonderful culture that almost was a bit of antithesis of, of what I think Wall Street, you know, tends to be perceived as. So I'm just curious, I think others are trying to replicate this on Wall Street and other investment banks are trying to make it more of a place that people want to work and, and to be more of an inclusive culture. And I'm just curious, you know, from your vantage point, how did you help to shape that? And what really makes a good culture and how do you develop that? Well, I think the one thing that you have to do and, and, and DTCC has been lucky, it's had CEOs uh, at the top and it, and it starts at the top who all cared about the employee base that worked at the company. Uh, and, and they showed it by listening carefully to what the employees had to say about what their working environment was uh, and making the changes appropriate to make certain that they follow through. So we would have sessions uh, with employees, you know, luncheon sessions where the employees could come in, uh, have lunch with top senior executives and tell us what it is that they were going through from a workday experience. What were the things that were troublesome to them? Uh, what was first on their mind? Uh, we did this in terms of the ethics code, but we also did it uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion. Um, and then we would go back and try to act upon those things. Uh, and equally important, we would have employee surveys. And the employee surveys were always anonymous. Uh, we would have pulse surveys uh, to try to get feedback as to whether or not what we were doing was the right way that they thought we were acting. So you got to walk the walk and you got to talk, not only talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk as well. And you got to walk the talk sometimes. You got to make certain that you're consistent with what your goals are. And one of the goals that, you know, I, when I was an executive there is I wanted to treat every employee the way that I felt if I was in their shoes, I'd want to be treated. And if I wasn't treating people in that fashion, 
I wanted them to feed that, give me that feedback. And I wanted to change my behavior to make certain that I lived up to the right credentials. So you want to treat people with respect. You want to treat people with dignity. And you want to make certain that they have a working environment that they're proud of. And if you look at the longevity of employees at DTCC, not just myself, who was almost there for 40 years, but I would look at the fact that we had what we used to call a quarter century club. These were employees who would be there for 25 years plus. And, you know, a fifth of the company, um, you know, had been at the company for 25 years plus. That says a lot about the culture of the company when you got people who are staying with you for 25 years. Now, that may change. Uh, as the employee base has changed, it's a much younger group that is now coming in. That younger group may have a different expectation level. So the company's going to have to change that too. You're going to have to deal with the fact that, you know, you, you now have um, this new generation, Generation Zen, I think that's what they're calling them, or Z. Um, they may have different expectations than the generations that uh, you and I came from, uh, especially me, since I think I'm a few years older than you all. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge every day to make certain that you got your ears open and your eyes wide open to see what's going on and to make certain that you're treating people with respect. It's the little things that count, like saying hello to everybody as you walk through the hallway, you know, and not just with your head down and, and being focused on what your next job is, but treating people in a decent way was, was what I wanted to do. And, uh, I think we lived up to that expectation. Well, you, you mentioned developing a culture of inclusiveness. And as we celebrate Black History Month uh, this month, you know, what, what advice would you give um, to either companies or individuals on how we can promote a more diverse workforce? And if are there specific examples that, that helped you to rise to the highest ranks of, of Wall Street um, in your career? Yeah, I, you know, I thought about that question quite a bit because I've been asked that on a number of occasions. Before I left DTCC, I did a town hall uh, with uh, some of our minority uh, employees. And I got asked the question, how did you get to where you got to? How did you overcome some of the barriers? And, and the thing is, you know, nobody does it on their own. Uh, that, that's a myth that you know, you, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That just is a myth, it doesn't happen. People have to look out for you. Uh, and, and it's not just mentoring. Mentoring is important, there's no doubt about it, but you gotta have a champion. And in my particular case, um, my champion started early on in my life. My grandmother and my mother were my first champions. You know, um, I, I lived with my grandmother uh, from a very early age. And I remember just one of the little things that she did, actually somebody in my family told me about it because I was probably too young to understand it. But when I first started school, uh, my grandmother couldn't read or write. So what she did is she took in laundry from uh, a cousin of ours. And in return, he had to help me with my homework. Now this was in rural South Carolina at the time. Uh, and I, I stayed in school there for two to three years and they were segregated schools, by the way. But if she hadn't taken that step to making certain that somebody was there every evening for me to work on my homework, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. 
That's how it starts. You got to have somebody who cares enough about you to do those little things that are important. And then, you know, as I mentioned, my mother was another one of my champions. So when my mom and my stepdad moved to New York City and I came along with them, um, and this was when I was in the third grade, the New York City schools naturally assumed if you were a kid from rural South Carolina who went to segregated schools, you couldn't do the work of the inner city schools. Well, my mother demanded that before they placed me, that they give me an exam. Well, the results of that exam were they actually promoted me two grades. <laughs> so, you know, again, you gotta have somebody who is your champion. Uh, and I, I use that theory all the time because it's worked for me all the way up the chain. My third grade teacher was a champion of mine. You know, I was probably a teacher's pet right? You know, put that in quotes. Uh, because I literally had lunch with her every day. But she would make certain that I got extra homework assignments. Um, you know, by the time I got to college, um, I had a champion in a fellow named Bart Giamatti, who was uh, later became the president of Yale. But he was my senior advisor in, in my English department. And he promoted me, he pushed me. He told, he's the one who told me, I want you to become a scholar at a house at Yale, which was a program of independent study for only 12 you know, students and you had to have the right grades. So he pushed me to get the right grades and then he pushed me into this program. And then when I didn't show up for the interview, he held open the interview process for two hours until I could get there. So again, you gotta have a champion. And when I was at Davis Polk, there was somebody there they had assigned a senior lawyer to look after every one of the junior lawyers to make certain that they had the right stuff, that we got into the right programs, that we got the right kind of support in order to do well. That is really important, I think, that you have to do that at every level if you wanna push diversity and inclusion. That's, you gotta have a champion for minorities, you gotta have a champion for women, you need to make certain that somebody is focused on making certain that these people get the right opportunities so they can show how talented they truly are. So that's my answer to that. Well, it's, it's incredibly sage advice. And I, you know, I've had champions over my career as well, and I wouldn't be here, but for those people. So um, we just have to keep reminding uh, people, like you said, it's not just mentoring, but really people are looking out for your interests and pushing you forward. So Larry, it's been incredibly fun chatting with you. Uh, you're my hero and a role model to many, um, you know, uh, in the industry. And I'm just so glad we had an opportunity to, to talk today and, and talk about some of the important issues facing our industry. Well, thank you. I appreciate, um, you know, first of all, I appreciate your kind words. Hopefully I live up to them, but equally important, I value your friendship, Walt. And I miss those days when we used to be able to physically get together uh, and uh, be able to say hello to one another. And hopefully that will occur before the year's over. So thank you again. And thank you to the FIA. I appreciate it. Well, I promise uh, next time I'm in, in South Florida, I'll come look you up and we'll go have a cocktail, assuming we all have vaccinations, but I look forward to it. I'll have mine. So you'll be safe. <laughs> <laughs> and I should be safe too. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, thanks to our audience for listening. And we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. We appreciate your listening. 
FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.